Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today's guest is Elliot Seldner, who is from Fair Share Farm in North Carolina. And they farm approximately, live in a farm of approximately 20 acres, and only a small part of that is farmed. But we are going to chat about their farm, about their online sales and pivot during COVID, and uh, where they're headed in the next couple of years. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much, Michael. It's thrilling to be here and be a part of it. Yeah, this is long overdue because I forget, have we met in person? I believe we did at one point. Definitely. We, it's actually a couple of times we met up at Stone Barns for the slow tools thing several years ago. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that has been more years than... Wow. It's been a while now. So <laughs> I realize how long, how many years that's been. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, you know, like the overview of your farming business. Like obviously you produce lots of food, but give us a little bit of the details of where you're, what your product production is, is focused right now. Sure. Well, we, um, we keep the goal of the farm fairly open-ended um, because several years ago we we sort of spent time working on like what our goals are as operators, farmers, growers, you know, the, the many hats that we kind of wear and, and, and share. And we kind of found a three, a three legged approach that gives us a lot of security um, in our decision-making. And so we've sort of set upon a mission of growing the best food that we possibly can and feeding as many people as we possibly can. And then, uh, you know, providing a secure workplace financially for us and our employees. And we find that those sort of pillars, those legs give us a very stable foundation to make decisions and um, prioritize our work. So that's, that's the abstract, but specifically we got our start uh, growing lettuce as um, many farms do these days. Many first generation farmers are these days. Um, lettuce, microgreens and garnish for chefs was our initial drive and then um, farmer's market as well. And since then, uh, since the beginning, we have, um, uh, been able to take on more farmers markets, serve more restaurants, and um, now serve families and home consumers via online sales. Um, so that is the the gist of it. We um, are grateful to be part of several good markets. We do Cobblestone Farmers Market here in Winston Salem. That's our hometown farmers market. We do. Uh, the town of Davidson, uh, which is south of us, just north of Charlotte, but south of Winston-Salem, they have a fantastic market that we go to. And then our friends, um, John and Lucia, have a bake shop called Bobby Boy Bake Shop. And we do a, uh, a pop-up sort of solo market there where we sell all sorts of products. And um, recently, we've been inspired and uh, exploring roadside sales as well. And so we're excited about the future of that um, because we're on this um, 
fairly well-trafficked road. There's a high school uh, right in our backyard, almost literally. And, um, and folks driving on our road, Transu Road in Pofftown, um, they can see our, our farm straddles both sides of the road and they can see our gardens on both sides of the road. So we're exploring the roadside uh, with that this year too. Very cool. All right, so let's talk a little bit about how you got started into farming. Farming, uh, yes. I got interested in the idea of what farming could be, or I started imagining what farming might be like um, when I was in college. And so um, I didn't really have any interest, not an interest, not just not even aware of food in general, uh, not interested, you know, like to eat, always like, uh-huh. but not really interested in food. Um, and uh, I don't know, things changed in high school, exposure to new, uh, not high school, but college, exposure to new ideas, new people, um, and then evolving value systems and, you know, sort of developing your own values as a human being, um, just kind of led us to farming. And I had sort of dabbled, had an opportunity to do some gardening in college, um, for this little, uh, project that the dining services was sort of trying to get going like a little, uh, farm garden for the dining service program. So I was involved with getting that started and, you know, just didn't know anything. Um, did a summer study abroad in St. Croix, went to a permaculture education place that was through a different college, um, got hooked up with them. That was sort of really eye-opening experience being in the tropics um, or subtropics, but also just seeing permaculture systems sort of being experimented with was a lot of fun. And then that basically led after college graduation to my first apprenticeship um, down in Kentucky. And ever since I've been sort of in the Southeast, a little bit of time in Texas, seeing different styles of operations. Um, And then eventually as we got into our mid twenties, you know, we just were like, no one's going to pay us a a living wage um, to be a farmhand. And it just was like time to get more serious with it or switch, you know, how we were spending our time. And we decided to get more serious with it. Um, Tried to promote ourselves in the early days um, online. You know, this is pre-Instagram, pre, I I don't know. I didn't do it through Facebook, but I basically made like an online resume with photos and stuff. Okay. And somehow somebody picked me up, flew me to DC and, we had an opportunity to start a farm on an old dairy farm on behalf of a family. And that was, um, that was a challenging experience for all involved. It lasted a year, but was um, a unique opportunity that really helped me decide that I definitely wanna stick with this. I think I am starting to understand a few things and um, wound up taking a job in North Carolina that was another one year sort of job. And then um, wound up connecting with our uh, future landlords um, via the Carolina Farm Stewardship Association. They had a listserv and a friend who was working there at the time disseminated my resume and a cover letter and got in touch with our landlords through that. Um, 
signed a lease, incorporated a business in 2014. And five years later, um, they, we reached uh, an arrangement and we purchased the farm. And then um, a couple of years later, um, they became our landlords again when we uh, leased an additional 12 acres of the original farm um, directly across the street from our home farm. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So that's kind of been your journey along the way. What would you say your biggest lesson takeaway has been as you've been kind of working through this aspect of going from not really a background of farming, but then figuring out farming with for two other people and then starting your own farm? Mm-hmm. Um, biggest learning was, um, Oh man, I'll, I'll just start talking and see if we get anything good. I'm, I, it's my training in college was in English literature. My wife, Emma, um, studied secondary ed social studies, and we've found that really communication has been our strong suit. Um, so getting our message across early on when we launched fair share farm, um, was, we learned that was our strongest suit. What we learned was our, our weakest suit was um, perhaps the mechanics of growing and things like that. Um, certainly we had confidence issues and confidence issues really kind of persist. And I'm not sure I'm ever going to like feel a hundred percent on growing, but um, you know, those early years when you're like, am I even planting something right? Will this grow? Yeah. Um, you know, that's really humbling and, and soil fertility and um, plant nutrition and stuff remains really the most daunting challenge for me as a grower. Um, so that's, that, that is, that's the biggest thing where, you know, I focus a lot of my thought and attention on how to get better, but I don't have a scientific background and it is really hard to bite in on the nuts and bolts. And that really does seem like the future. So trying to use our skills communication to work with others and, and learn science through communicating, through communicating is kind of, is kind of my biggest learning area right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, you know, the NPK, all the micronutrients, how the bio all the biology interacts, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then these sort of juxtapositions between like, okay, you have NPK, Clearly people grow great quality produce, you know, relatively, or depending on your perspective, growing in a conventional um, chemistry driven way. But then people who are from a biological perspective are also growing exceptional produce. So learning about the intersection there increasingly as a grower is just endlessly interesting to me. And um trying to learn everything I can from all sects and respect for all different disciplines and styles of agriculture, because there's something to learn everywhere. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, one of the things I see, you're always experimenting. So you're always trying something different on the farm. And obviously if you scroll back through Instagram, there's massive changes that are always going on. Um, One thing I see is you've been playing around with the no till Talk to us a little bit more about that because you're doing a cover crop and then you're using, I think, cardboard and compost. Yeah, that was something that we ran with um, last year to get some no-till stuff going on. And um, that was, 
wickedly su successful, you know, surprisingly. Okay. And I really, at the time when we were experimenting with that, I really did not know how it was going to go. Um, so there's pros and cons to it, of course. Um, but there is something special about having a mulch on top um, of your bed that you're growing in, in that having the soil insulated, we've found um, just holds moisture. I don't think there's anything groundbreaking there. That's sort of uh, Charles Dowding, uh -huh. theory, you know, and, yep. but it's one of those things where if you don't try it or you don't have experience with it, it's really hard to comprehend. Like how would that work or why would it work? Um, and it just really does seem particularly spring and fall when it's cooler out. Like there just are a lot more earthworms right there underneath the mulch layer. And it, it's just surprising. And so it, you might ask about like, well, how do you get your N, P and K or how do you fertilize that? And, you know, as we go into our second and third years running this sort of system outdoors, um, you know, we just, we, um, oftentimes we're using that never sink blend that seven spring farm, um, distributes. Okay. It's got a, some really good ingredients and we were buying those and mixing it our own. And it was like, wow, it's already practically put together here. So let's use that. And that's our fertilizer effectively. And we just, and we just, um, dress the mulch and tilter that in and it seems to be fine. So fine that I actually wonder if it's even necessary, but we haven't stopped fertilizing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. So then you put that down. Now are you continuing to put down the cardboard every year or is it just a one and done thing? So this year we didn't put it down last year. We put it down this year. We didn't, um, the, the cardboard is the linchpin in the mulching system. My point there being, if you want that sort of weed free style garden, and I'm talking in my context, um, you know, if you're in a place where it doesn't rain very much, it's mm. probably a different story, but, um, the cardboard lasts much longer than you'd expect where your mulch on top of the cardboard is heavy. It will break down readily. Um, but a surprise benefit from the cardboard is let's say the edges of your bed or the shoulders of your bed, where the, where the mulch on top of the cardboard is thinner, the cardboard is actually going to stick around a long time and almost be like a shield to the shoulder of your bed and stuff. So interesting. That, yeah. That works surprisingly well for weed suppression. Um, another thing. So like on our farm, we've, you know, we've come to the conclusion that not on our farm, I mean, on our farm, but through inspiration from others and information from others, you know, whether it be a, a high tunnel, a greenhouse, a low tunnel, mulch, tarp, plastic, when we insulate the cover crop, organic mulches, when we insulate the soil, you know, we're protecting it from the harshest qualities of our environment. And we found that when we embrace that theory of mulching, our crops do a lot better. And I believe that in large part is due to the amount of rainfall we get in our region. I think we, you know, we could be washing nutrients. We could be destroying biological habitat. We could be proliferating disease because of splashback and all that from the soil. You know, so there's a number of reasons why we've adopted cover. So in the outdoors, 
where we've not put tunnels, caterpillars or whatever, we've got a mulch. And that seems to really help, you know, with moisture retention, moisture mediation, and then disease suppression. Um, you also get like, if you're doing fertigation and stuff like that, and your drip is under plastic mulch, you, you definitely know you're having effective distribution of your products. Um, and, and then, you know, likewise, we have about eight tenths of an acre undercover high tunnel and caterpillar tunnel. And um, under there, we have a different culture. You know, there were bare soil. Mm -hmm. We use sprinklers, we use drip tape as appropriate throughout the growth of any given crop and we do more cultivation there um but we tend to put like things like radish turnips direct seeded fast crops will go under there and then every week we're planting a caterpillar at, at a minimum a caterpillar of lettuce a week um and the tunnels uh, i mean we're mutual friends with with ray tyler and um, he'd speak to this but the tunnels really just help you stay in lockstep with your program yeah and and, and it's a must if you're going to make a name for yourself as the this guy or the that person you know you need to be on a certain schedule whatever it is and if you're in the Southeast or even maybe just the East coast in general, uh, probably that's fair to say the East coast in general, you know, it's just, it, it rains a lot and it's yeah, hard, yeah. it's hard to get your work done on a schedule. And then there's added benefits, right. You know, a dry place to harvest and work. Um, you know, so there's a lot of carry-ons. What's cool about an organic mulch in our outdoor beds um, and the no-till systems is that in many ways it has a very similar effect. It drains well, and it doesn't have much splashback. So, and then, you know, it limits mud on your feet and on your boots. And so you can get back into the field quickly there after a, a heavy rain. So it's sort of like, um, same criteria, different modes and methods. Yeah. Yeah. To that, uh, that tunnel aspect last night, I was out till about nine 30 getting some crops in before it rained. Cause we're out of tunnel space. So I had to do it out in the field and, uh, that would have been nice to be able to quit, you know, at the right time last night. And just this morning, you know, go into the tunnel and be able to seed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some impetus and motivation to cover everything. I happen to like both styles though. I like, yeah. So yeah, definitely advantages. And our the problem with us is our city, if we end up covering too much more space, they're going to hit us for, because we have to do a development plan because we're in city limits, they're going to hit us with having to put in dry wells. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What, oh, yeah. What's a dry well? I, like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so a dry well is basically this big cement cavern, which goes like 20 feet down and basically allows the water to infiltrate into the gravel layer that's right below us. So we're on one of the one of the world's best aquifers here in Southwest Ohio, and um, but we're on but we so the city does not have a, a like a dry like a like a rainwater system. It only has a sewer system, and the sewer is only for basically your your bathrooms. Um, but everything else, so basically, if you want to put in like a business and you cover and do impervious surfacing, which they call a tunnel impervious surface, even though all the water coming off a tunnel we recapture and put underneath the tunnel with our drain system, they basically yeah. So um, thankfully for the tunnels we put in so far, we were able to be creative with how we um, how we talked about the different landscaping we were doing. Um, but, um, if we go ahead and, and cover more of it, they're going to be, 
and they're going to start to really get on us. Um, uh, if I decide to, you know, just even listen to them any longer, uh, we're to the point now where they don't know what they're talking about and we just may do what we want. And if they decide to sue us, they decide to sue us. Wow. And, I'm going to, yeah, I need to do a podcast just on that, just on dealing with our municipality because literally they've cost us thousands of dollars in stupidity tax. Well, it's funny you bring that up um, because our road, so we're, our area, you know, Winston-Salem is, has its roots until very, very recently in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, our, you would call our area suburbs, but it's really like kind of agriburbs, if you will, because it's like, we're pretty, some people think we're rural. I happen to think we're not rural at all, but our road is the, is the county line um, for, you know, for what, how to say this for our area. So I'm in the county on my house and home farm, but then my big field across the street is in the city. Oh, wow. Yeah. So my, all of my structures, my 20 caterpillars, my high tunnels, my greenhouses, they're in the county. So because I'm, I'm permitted ag and in the county, I don't have very, I have very few restrictions. Um, but then if I were to attempt to do the same thing, literally crossing the street, I'd, I'm sure I would face a lot more restrictions or at least, you know, forethought and planning that I would have had to have done to get going. So it's this, uh, we're very lucky to have gotten started when we did, because, you know, you never know when. Yeah. Like get incorporated. Exactly. Yeah. And again, we, we thinking back over the you know, last year, we may have done some things differently, but it's um, I've had more gray hair and more stress and I've spent literally $10,000 just dealing with regulation. I hear that. Yeah. Last, so it's, yeah. Last my chin went white. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. Um, let's dive though into more growing stuff because uh, your systems obviously are on par, on top. You're on just top of everything you're doing. Let's talk about the microgreen production because I know that's something you do pretty large scale. Um, yeah. Are you in the paper pot trays or are you still using like a 1020 size? We are simple. Um, we don't use paper pots, trays, stuff for micros. We just buy- okay. 20s. Yeah, we buy 1020s like once a year from Nolts Produce, yep. and that serves us fine. Okay. And so then um, you have you have a wide variety of mixes you're doing, or you bring everything down to just a very few number of mixes? We grow a wide variety of crops as far as micros go. Um, and so it, it's dual purpose. Um in the, you know, we have like a garnish program where there's things that would be more chef oriented. And then there's the more food style micros, if you will, that are kind of like family and farmers uh-huh. market centered. And um, so pea shoot is one of those pea shoot has its own grow area, you know, that we just grow a lot of pea shoot. It's pea shoot is also the base of our micro uh-huh. and um yeah, so we do a we do a micro mix. We have a product called Emma's Wild Emma's Wild Mix for farmers markets. That um, that's my wife's name, and it's 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 everything but the pea shoot plus some herbs and edible flowers. So it's this fun mix we do for the uh-huh. farmers market. And then 
your usual suspects, peas, sunflower shoots, radishes, um, kale and broccoli will be um, ones that are most popular with us. arugula, of course. Yep. And uh, that's about it. We do uh, herbs as well. So we'll do like an herb mix for the market that'll have like um, chervil, carrot, onion. So we, we do all that. Um, we, yeah. And then, um, you know, media and stuff like that, we, we buy in uh, Vermont compost. And so it's just very simple. We use 4 uh -huh. and that supplies all the nutrition they need. And are you reusing soil at all? Or is it once and done? We reuse it, Michael, but that turns into mulch out in the garden. Okay. For, so, okay. Yep. Gotcha. That, that's exactly how we use it. Yep. We're yeah, just, it's, it's great. It's great, you know, particularly for, you probably know Fort V, even if you're not using it, but it's just real soft. It's very mm. nice to work with. And we'll, we'll buy in local made um, air quotes compost and use that as a mulch. And it's hard and sharp and not nice, you know? Yeah. Um, so we prefer to use the, the potting soil waste as a mulch, but we don't, we don't produce enough of it. And so um we'll see what we do i do like doing the mulches it is a lot of work um and i am concerned about the quality of local composts and what we're actually putting onto our soil so we may inevitably go back and kind of work that in and just sort of um uh, incorporate it into the soil and just boost the om you know significantly that way and just have more of a composite highly composted soil that we grow in yep absolutely now you must be just, buying just it because I'm, yeah i'm scared to be buying it in i'm concerned that every batch is different and yeah quality and this. we're to the point where we're actually bringing in going to be bringing in compost from pennsylvania the mushroom compost because every single time it's the exactly the same and it actually is technically cheaper that's cool yeah i it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy when you think of it, but it actually is cheaper because of the quality. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, and I'll have to look into that too. Um, I was talking with this company, you might know them. They're called Keystone Bioag. No, heard? have they're, not. Uh, they're in the Lancaster area. Um, they, they have uh, a compost and a potting soil uh, that I'm just taking a look at, not not for right now, but maybe for later. Um, they're touting some things that are interesting, so I'm wondering if it might be a quality on a quality basis a competitor with Vermont Compost. Um, but so what we do, like with Vermont Compost, is we'll buy in a good bit of potting soil, but we'll also buy in manure compost and use that as um, a fertilizer or amendment in in our tunnels, you know, use, we're using like a matter of six buckets per bed, you know, Gotcha. No, yeah, nothing heavy, but high quality is the idea, you know, going, going for biology rather than piling on bulk. It just bulk seems yeah. unnecessary, you know, well, especially if it's low quality. Yeah. 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 And then, yeah, just schlepping material for the sake of it is not, my idea of fun so yeah so then the six buckets you're just raking that in yeah um 
you know, tunnels are nice, right, Michael, because they're measuring sticks mm -hmm. at bows mm -hmm. every four feet or every five feet. And you're like, okay, if I want to switch it up and say, I want 12 buckets, you know, it's X amount of bows, or if I want six buckets, it's this. And so we'll just apply that based on how we think any given block or tunnel is performing more or less. And then, or if it's like a bean, we'll, we'll cut the rate by half, or if it's, a tomato maybe we'll double it you know and sort of play it like that we rake it in we use the tilther um depending on the time of year we'll use power harrow um but once we're like in full swing in the summertime and we're this year the past two seasons we've been doing a much better job on monitoring our soil moisture and if you can if you can not if you're able to not let your tunnel beds dry out it makes flip and replant a lot more simple uh -huh. when you're operating at the hand scale if it's rototiller and stuff like that it's not as big a deal but when when you're counting on conditions to be right for an efficiency's sake you know dialing in your moisture is crucial um, and so if the moisture is right then it means the biology is more likely to be there and so we keep that stimulated every crop by adding a small addition of compost. Gotcha, that makes sense. Uh, one last question on microgreens. What are you finding, because you buy a, a fair amount of, of seed, I would say, where are you finding your best seed sources right now? Well, I love Johnny's and they're super convenient. Yeah. And I just, I basically buy most of my seed from Johnny's. Okay. That's what we've been doing too. And, and some people say, no, oh, it's so much more expensive. And I'm like, uh, really not in the long run because of the quality. Yeah. I mean, their seeds germinate. Uh, they're pretty transparent about like what rate of germ you're going to get. And yeah, I'm comfortable with them. I like my seed rep. I don't like order through him, but you know, he, I appreciate the relationship and yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Johnny's is just great. I do hear complaints about seed costs, but if you don't look anywhere else, you don't know. And so, <laughs> yes, that is true. Yes. And it's crazy now with the online ordering, I just always in the comment box put, Hey, send me some fun freebies. And I, I, they're probably gonna be upset about this, but every single time I get some fun stuff in the mail. Hey man, that's a good tip. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we have more harvest knives than, <laughs> <laughs> and I literally, those harvest knives are the best. So I, the perfect steak knife, we, uh, they all often wind up in my kitchen. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, we talked about the no-till. We talked about the micros, edible flowers. Now you're doing a fair amount of that. Um, are you actually like doing a plan for that? So you're like at the beginning of the year, these are exactly which ones we want at what times. And then you just plan out the entire s season. Like right now, are viola still going strong for you or are you kind of a uh, trail off because of the heat? Yeah, no, um, by specifically violas are way done by now. Um, okay. We happen to have a little bit hanging on, but we're not picking it. Um, so a plan Yes and no, Michael, but it is mostly instinctual and shoot from uh -huh. the hip on that. Um, and then it's less, it, it's less important than it may seem uh, on social media and stuff for us right now, uh, particularly with COVID, you know, it really reinforced where we were headed in the long haul, but um, we, I am much more interested in growing crops that are food food um, uh -huh. that will feed people i love the beauty 
and I'm looking for crossover value and stuff too. So we're dabbling a little bit with cut flower, like so zinnias, for instance, they're not the most palatable, but you deep petal them. Those are an edible flower. Oh, really? So there's a nice crossover there. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, and then, you know, marigolds, you know, so that can be in the landscape and you can get a dual function out of that. Uh -huh. um, so we're looking for duality. I have a tunnel that was set up some years ago um, from Nifty Hoops. And I set up two columns of, bed, of short beds running half the width perpendicular okay. yep. to the length uh -huh. of the tunnel. So the central walkway, two columns of bed on either side, each bed about 11, 12 feet long. And that was, I set that up so that we could be popping and pulling all sorts of wide variety um, back in the day so that we could have a very spontaneous and inspired garnish program. And that was very, that was very functional yes. in that regard. Um, so I think you could have a wicked detailed plan and I'm sure like a, a chef's garden yes. would, but uh, I never got there with it. You kind of, after a while, you kind of know what works in what season Yeah, and, and you just ballpark it. I have at least. And then we started investing in more perennials for, um, garnish too. So you could yep. have dianthus over winter, you know, whatever, you know, various sages and salvias, um, would, would, would just be there. And you kind of have the perennials is if, just like for cut flowers as it would be for garnish that's how you really distinguish yourself as having like more odd and rare things you know mm -hmm. absolutely all right so now with the uh the tunnels you're doing things like i see they've got like the scallions in there as well um but mostly you're flipping those for greens yeah yes and no um it, it used to be there was a, an objective we had set a couple of years ago. Well, actually, the year of COVID 2020 was the year we had committed to selling two tunnels a week of lettuce. Okay. Um, so we were running that program as we headed into the spring of 2020, and we were able to get rid of that. Um, but it was sketchy, like, and we definitely had to. Um, extend ourselves and take on risk that we didn't want to. So we've reeled that back in and um, diversified what we do in the tunnel. But with that said, Michael, lettuce was the crop, micros and lettuce were the crops that really helped us make a name for ourselves locally. And lettuce will probably always be in the tunnels, my benchmark crop. It is the crop that I gauge and weigh the value of other crops against. Um, yes. So lettuce does a lot. Yeah, it does a lot for us. Um, we paper pot it. We hand transplant it just depending on what product we're after. Um, but what I like about lettuce is, is that it's a fast crop. It's a desirable crop statistically, you know, by customers and uh and well it's fast and desirable i mean and at high value Th those are three critical criteria um and then you can play around with your spacings to develop you know characteristics that you want in the product 
Um, I, what I like about it is, you know, you can call it 40 days, 50 days, 55 days. You can set an arbitrary benchmark on DTM and then you can, you can set a list of pros and cons. You can monitor the value of Bedfoot and all this. Yeah. You can use those assets to contrast against something that you might want to use in that space and say, Hey, this is much better an outdoor crop than it is a tunnel crop. Um, and, yeah. that's, and that's, and that's the mode that I operate within. Yeah. We do it uh, square feet per week. Uh, yeah. Basically it's one square foot per week is what the, what the, what the result for that is. So lettuce, obviously maybe it's in your tunnel for five weeks. So you take what the yield is. So maybe it's a thousand dollars off one bed. And so now at five weeks, that's $200 for that bed per week. Huh. Um, so yeah, that's how we've gone to, because uh, like think about if you just do per square foot, you know, tomatoes obviously give you an incredibly high per square foot, but they're also in the tunnel for an incredibly long time. So right. if you actually take the time into consideration and divide it by that, that's when you actually start to really see actually what everything gives you. Yeah, that's, you know, specifically on tomatoes, that's why I grow almost strictly determinates in tunnels. Yeah. I like, I like to get them in, have a heavy flush and get them out. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. We, I, um, I have enterprise budgets that I monitor and I, I went back through your um, podcast feed and I listened to the Richard Wiswall a couple of weeks uh -huh. ago. I love that guy. I don't know him, but oh, he's awesome. That yeah. book made it for me. That that book was critical um, for the business part of it, and much respect to him. That is that is a critical book. Um, anyway, you know, through Richard Wiswall and his CD that you get with his book, you know, it it starts to show you. It shows the non business mind what's possible. Um, for your biz, for your farm and starts to help the young person, the non-business person or the new farmer become a real farmer. Um, you know, it shows, it, you know, the level of detail that he's scrutinized, particularly with some of his overhead budgets and greenhouse budgets, it's beyond me, I'll be honest. But it's just useful to have exposure to that and then try to use the concepts and then and make your own spreadsheets that fit your your system and so the way you derive your value or your yeah. value per week you know i i don't think that way at all but i think that's a really cool way to think we're at a point now where i'm very much interested in revenue weekly and um a lot less interested in cost because i know that we have effective systems that are profitable Yes. And, You're more where you need to know the total amount of sales for the farm to cover what you've got in expenses. I'm still the point, right? Well, especially because we're a brand new farm, we're still trialing a hundred different things. And so we're like, okay, does this make money? Does this make money? Do the customers want this? And so we literally right now have like 80 different crops on the menu, but we're trying for three, four weeks. And then we ditch them just as fast as we can, if they're not going to work in our environment. Yes. And then it's, you know, context is king and in, in this, in this game because if you're an urban farm and I don't, I don't quite understand all the restrictions and parameters that you have to operate in, but there's 
typically with the urban farm, it's imperative that it's fast rotation, high turnover and stuff like that. Cause it's the only conceivable way that you could make a living doing it. Yeah. If, if you're deriving all of your income based on what the farm produces, or even if you're not, you really don't want to mess around with things that you can't afford to grow. Yeah. With that said, that's why I wanted and have wanted to expand the farm because there's different modes of operation and different types, there's different modes of operations and how you qualify profitability, let's say, can be different based on the application. Um, what growing across the street in the new area, I have a personal drive and passion to grow cover crops and build soil health. That's what I wanna be doing. I'm fortunate that I have a functional, profitable, fingers crossed, business that exists on the other side of the street that has now paid for me to have this luxury to experiment. Mm. And I'm hoping to you I'm hoping to develop a different system across the street that's tractor based, mechanically based, and rooted in regenerative ag. And so it's going to be a cover crops based fertility program where I would like to see, I would like to see, you know, 12 to 18 months in cover, 90 to 120 days in cash mm -hmm. and have a longer rotation like that. None, none of this is groundbreaking or new. This is old school in my opinion, but it's where I want to go because it's just a different way to do it. It's more fun. And there's crops that I get to offer my customers that they, I know they want uh -huh. that I can grow and ha be of a really high quality in the long run to satisfy the whole picture, you know, of their needs. Yeah. I just want to, long story short is I want to experiment with different growing styles and being able to grow different products for my customers. I don't want to be locked in as just the lettuce guy, because I feel like um, that is to, I want to have, I want to have a dynamic product offering is what I want. So you want to be able to add things like winter squash, which um, are inherently low dollar per square foot, but they are low time commitment. So when we ran our numbers on winter squash, cause we wholesale winter squash here on a small scale, we actually make pretty good money because the time amount that we put into that crop is incredibly low, basically because you're growing it on um, a fabric or a, a bioplastic. Um, but your return per acre is incredibly low. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's that. And I think we might, at least you get the storage there, but like for us exploring the roadside stand, you know, mm -hmm. fruit is king. And so we're looking towards strawberries. We're looking towards melons and cantaloupe, also tomatoes, you know, the summer seasonal that people will turn for, you know, turn off the road into my parking lot for. Yeah. And they'll buy the strawberry and then they'll buy maybe a bag of salad and a microgreen. And that's their first introduction to you. And so then they'll come back for the, the salad and the microgreen because it was so good, but they never would have stopped unless they stopped first for the strawberry. Yes, I, I agree with that instinct. And then like, and then getting somebody to pull over for tomatoes, right, is an opportunity to convert them for online sales. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about your recent shift to the online sales, because that's something I know that's new for you. And you kind of actually has blown your farm up a little bit in size is being able to move now to a lot more accessibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we've been basic. So it was the first slow tools that I went to. I, I met um, Andre. Yes. You remember him? Um, and his co-op, his farm, and then his cooperative, they use local food marketplace. Yeah. Andre Contamo. Yeah. Great friend. Yep. Yep. I, yeah, I was like, wow, that software sounds like that's the thing for me because we were at the time we were serving, I don't know, 40 or 50 different restaurant accounts. And we were like making so many dang errors all the time. Uh-huh. And I was like, fed up with it. I was tired of missing one item, having to come back to the farm and then go out to deliver it. Um, and so that any software that can handle data and sales and all that is going to be useful for the contemporary farmer who's interested in doing direct to consumer. We need to keep track of our info and we need to get the job done right because the customer doesn't care. You know, they will, they will take your stuff or they won't, but they're going to get the food they need. We need to give them no reason to give up on us. Like we need to be there and be reliable. And we felt like routing, you know, doing a text, taking their text, putting it into QuickBooks, exporting to Excel, modifying tables and this and that. I mean, we were losing so much in the conversion of data and it was take time consuming and inaccurate. So we needed something. We were using that software, which was, you know, originally created for aggregators and stuff like that. And it really was just the perfect, the perfect tool for when COVID hit. And so we knew that we could be doing sales to families and home consumers um, but I hadn't really wanted to, we were doing the restaurant thing, doing, doing some markets. Um, and we were happy cause we were a lettuce oriented farm at that point. And then things changed, you know, we were delivering to restaurants, uh, the, that, that second week of March, I believe, and, um, making plans for sales for the following week, mm-hmm. we were like talking about COVID, but I was trying to nail, you know, early March is right when produce is starting to come back for us. Yeah. And, uh, and so we were trying to line up our, our business with our, our good customers. And, and then March 13th comes, uh, President Trump gives his speech, you know, and then the whole thing changed. And mm. um, yeah, at that point, we were just, I, I recall we panicked, you know, had a real come to whatever moment and like I, we, we sent out a letter to all of our customers letting them know what we were doing and the response was overwhelming as uh, we found out it was overwhelming for many many local farms in a positive set in a positive way and we just ran with the roller coaster and then we were able to um, we were able to diversify we started steering away from such a lettuce dominant grow grow plan and diversifying our product offering and then ultimately working with 
other local producers and doing some minor aggregation in our own right. And um, it's just, and then it was just proved to be really thrilling and invigorating to be serving families and serving individuals eating at home. And we love that. We really love that. The appreciation that the customers give us is just fuels my engine, you know, like really inspires me. And so it's been thrilling to do that. And then, and then, you know, we were growing, we had our farm, which was a business. And so we wound up having lettuce as a product. And now I get to have full diet as my product. And, and that really seems like a pathway towards a more sustainable business serving our community rather than being this sort of specialized niche business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This podcast is brought to you by Stuart and Dan has joined us for another financial tip. Dan, what's the difference between grants and loans? So grant is normally when funding is given to a farmer, it's effectively donated. Um, it can either be charitable grants or it can be grants through the USDA and government programs. Um, while obviously the benefit of free money is, looks appealing up front, yeah. there's often a lot of strings attached. There's often a lot of time involved to apply for them. There's often requirements of matched funding. There's often third-party reports and feasibility studies and all types of uh, attachments that are needed for these, these grants. So it can cost five, $10,000 to prepare grants and get everything ready. And we just did a USDA value-added producer grant. It probably took our team 70, 80 hours. And, you know, we, we are definitely more effective than a lot of people at putting them together. Yeah. What I, what I think works well is matching grants with funding, you know, layering grants on top of borrowing money. So, okay, I'm going to borrow money to expand my irrigation system, but I'm also going to get an equip grant from the NRCS, go add a hoop house and let's weave those together because obviously any assets and funding you're getting that you're not having to pay back is going to help drive your business. But as I was saying before, in, in USDA and FSA loans, these things can take a long time. You may get rejected. The windows may shut. The funding they may not be available. So oftentimes it looks like it's a, it's a seamless kind of easy option. But most of the time, it's a lot of paperwork, a lot of time. Um, but it's part of, I think, overall assessment of a farmer of what's all the funding out there? What can I weave together? And how do I put it together to have the best chance to be successful? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you start factoring in that, then the effective rate on that grant can be quite substantial. And, and that's the, the hard part too, is you don't even know if you're going to get the grant. And I think that happens yeah. all the time where we had a, a farmer we were working with, a bison farmer that wanted to do a processing facility. They submitted this grant, spent tons of time, and then they just got disqualified because you can't fund equipment through the grant, even though it's for value-added processing. You would think equipment's yeah. important, but the equipment has to be funded somewhere else and, and not included. And so all of the nuance and technicalities around these grants, I think become so frustrating that you've put all this time in, you've submitted it, and then you hear back for, you know, rule 68B is why you're disqualified. Um, grant writers, there are a lot of grant writers out there. The problem is they can also cost a lot of money. Uh, often you're paying them regardless of the grant happened. So it's, it's the third party costs and the time and all of that added up. Um, can definitely uh, be problematic. I do think certain grant programs are excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, NRCS EQIP grant is relatively straightforward and simple, not high dollar. I think it's up to 10,000 a year. You can use it yeah. for a few years. Um, but, you know, uh, a hoop house, irrigation, fencing, these types of improvements of clear 
measurable uh, improvement. Yeah. So I think you just have to assess it and figure out what's out there and, and whether worth the effort. Yeah. And for even for us, so we actually are have right now in an equip grant, but we didn't wait. We went and got a loan on our first greenhouse because we know, knew we needed to get up and going. And then the equip is going to kick in a couple more down the line if it happens. But and that's way, often a good way to do it. Get going, get the business started. Don't wait for the first one. And I think greenhouses and houses are a good one. You know, just start using them. You're going to need more. You can always oh, yeah. use more of them. Um, and layer it in. Yeah. But otherwise you'd be waiting two years. And a lot of these grants, you also have to pre-fund the uh, improvements mm-hmm. and it's a reimbursement. So, you know, where are you going to get the tens of thousands of dollars up front? And we've actually been doing a lot of those loans recently where we're advancing funds against a future reimbursement. And supposedly it's 30 days and then it's 90 days and then it's six yeah. months. And then this paper was right. And somehow they were expecting the farmer to float it for a year. Uh, and I think wow. that's the reality of the system, just not being designed for farmers that they're expecting you ha- to have capital to draw down on to use. But at the end of the day, most farmers are, are running very tight balance sheets. Yep. Yep. So talk to us about the software. Has it done everything you dreamed it would do? Or because that's always something that people are talking about. Well, what software do you use for that? Or what are the challenges you found with it? Um, I think it's great. Um, as we've grown, um, people have grown into various roles on the farm. So my wife, um, is de facto sales manager, accountant, sort of, um, you know, really the leader in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it's been excellent. What I would say is the best thing about LFM is that they have a committed crew that has not given up on their product. They continue to refine, update, and improve. And that's, that mm-hmm. is critical. Like it's not one of these sort of one and done quickly becoming stale and outdated um, programs. You know, it wasn't like a project, like this is what they do. And Mm -hmm. it's not like other services, you know, I don't want to dwell too much on like how good it is because this isn't a sales pitch. It is highly functional for us. Um, It's it's one of the, I'd say maybe the most restrictive part of it is that, it's fairly expensive to get into. That is true. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like Vermont compost, right? You get what you pay for. Mm. So plug, plug, plug complete. (laughs) I am pro pro LFM. Yes. So now you use it for your, your restaurants and all of that. Now, obviously your, your restaurants probably dropped off substantially with the whole, um, COVID thing. Yeah, that was, that's, been such a tragedy um Mm. but yeah a lot of people have suffered and um we had a number of accounts who were very strong who weathered and continued to support us uh, amazingly throughout um but yeah it's been it's been rough it has been rough for the restaurants um but yes they do they uh many will enter their own sales there's still and kind of has always been a bit of babysitting with, with some chefs and that's okay too. Um, everybody has their own way of communicating and that's true. <laughs> okay. You know, so um, we did lose a number of accounts. Um, the strongest stuck with us and are better than ever. And actually that's okay. Um, but when COVID hit 70% or so of our business was to restaurants 
Um, that's no longer the case. I'd say it's more like 25% now. And that actually seems healthier because we are working with, I guess, overall retail, uh, restaurant, you know, direct to chef and wholesale, like we're working with the accounts that want to work with us. And that's been a really healthy change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Don't work with, and there's always going to be that 10% or so of customers. You're like, oh, this person's frustrating. And so this kind of gave you a chance to clean house a little bit. Yeah. I mean, not, not, to, yeah, not to be disrespectful, but yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, and it, I'll reference Richard Wiswell again, remember his matrix of customer uh-huh. types, right? You have the high value, low maintenance, yes. value, high maintenance. Uh, what, how does it go? Low, low value, low maintenance is the worst type. And then you've got, what's that third one in between? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same matrix with like time management is like, you know, the urgent, um, the urgent high, you know, actually that needs to be done. The urgent that's, you know, literally a phone call of a salesperson who's very, you know, it's urgent, but low priority. Um, but I think you're, you know, it's, yeah, it's the, you want to work with the high value, low maintenance customer, and you want to kick to the curb, the high maintenance, low value customer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so figuring out how you make that work is, is just every farm is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. And then there's also like managing your reputation and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about hiring because you have a team there to keep everything going. How do you pick the the right people? We have a fantastic team um, and we're very lucky to have them. And we were able to make it through COVID together stronger, it feels, than ever. Uh, We have a team that works and laughs together, which is Mm -hmm. fun. Um, so we have, um, a woman named Meredith. She's our, our, she's our garden manager, if you will, as we expand the farm, like she is in charge of running the garden side, the greenhouses and all that, um, the high tunnels, I should say. Um, if I, if I can't be responsible, if I'm doing tractor stuff or whatever, she's our go-to responsible one. And she, she does, uh, she leads the planting. She does the majority of the paper pot planting. You know, she manages the irrigation, you know, the critical, critical tasks. Uh-huh. Um, I trust her very much with measurements for fertility. Um, and she does spray applications. We sort of share that together. Um, person named Megan manages our greenhouse. So she seeds all the microgreens and all the transplants and handles the daily chores associated with that. Um, She's fantastic. We have a new uh, team member named Hannah and she's our wash and pack manager. And she has been an incredibly quick learn and um, had had farm experience um, at at another very high quality farm in the past. I'd been working at a university for a few years and then was ready for a change back. And so we're really fortunate to have her leading the way. And so wash and pack manager means um, working and directing um, hourly and part-time folks uh, in packing, in washing, and then, you know, managing the inventory. So that's a critical, critical job. Uh, And then, and then uh, this year we hired a driver, a full-time driver, and 
full, he's not driving full time, but his primary occupation is driving. And then he'll help out with pack and harvest and stuff as needed. Um, so those are our four critical full timers at this point. Um, we have a number of folks who come in on and off in the mornings. And then we have some folks who come in in the afternoon. So as far as hourly goes, we have an evolving and revolving cast of crew casting crew. Um, and because we're flexible, you know, these days you have to be flexible, particularly if you want to work with good people. So you just, if they seem like a good fit, that's, that's what I require. And now, Michael, as we talk about employees and stuff, have you, have you heard of this book? It's called good to great. Yes. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Jim Collins. Yeah. Yeah. My buddy, Jimmy, um, said, read this book. And I did, I listened to that on audible in like a day. I was mm -hmm. those goosebumps inspired the whole time. <laughs> and the one, the thing I reference the most, I think about it every day, get the right people on the bus. And mm -hmm. then the, the parentheses is get the wrong people off the bus. Well, and then get them in the right seats on the bus too, because like in our former farm, we had Sue, who was our greenhouse manager. And when Sue started, she was general farm. And she, for the life of her, could not get a bunch of radishes the same size every single time. I mean, literally, she would try her hardest, but they just wouldn't happen. But in the greenhouse, man, she would shine. So we just, she no longer was allowed to bunch stuff. And she knew that. We laughed about it. It was a funny joke on the farm, but the greenhouse was her department. And, and she was the sole person responsible for all that. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, and you do have to, make sure and you know but another another like to just uh, to caveat that statement you made um you may not you need you know if it's the right fit but it may not be the right job and so you you yes. don't you you keep the right people and you find the right job um and then what i find to be very powerful about um, keeping, get the right people on the bus is, you know, the, the contrast is get the right, get the wrong people off. And I believe that to be just as important because, um, what he discusses is that it's an issue of respect of mutual respect between parties. And if it's not a good fit and it's apparent, you owe it to that person to, to let them move on and get their life oriented and focused on what is best for them. And I believe that to be really important when, when we work with folks, if it's not working out right, then we need to address that and resolve it quickly. Um, <laughs> otherwise we extend and cause more harm down the line. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I, um, I love my crew and I'm very appreciative that they decided to keep working with us. And, you know, there's just like, there's no, that has been such a goal for our business is to get it to a point where we could support other human beings in a real way. Um, I, early on, I realized that I did not enjoy working on the farm alone. I mm. found it to be isolating and overwhelming and I need to share the joys and the burdens of the operation with other people. And it's made it much more enjoyable for me. And I, I'm, I'm more happy as a result. It lets me focus on the things that make us money and keep us in business. And I don't mean to say that like, I'm not 
working like you know my life revolves around harvesting that's i i spend the first half of the day harvesting and then i'll do whatever else needs to get done and then we squeeze in time for crop planning and walks and harvest projection and all of that so then you're you're saying you spend a fair amount of your time harvesting um I work that, with the crew. I work with the yeah. crew. Is what I mean to say, I don't. Yeah. I'm not like a manager in an office. I I want to be there. I believe that uh, you have to put you have to put your work where your talk is, or however you say that. You know, you have to show up. If you have rules for people, you have to follow your own rules. It's about respect, and I, I believe that we're doing. I think we skew positive, and I think we skew successful because we try to be there for the people we work with and we try not to let them down and we apologize when we do, or even if it's just something that we feel internally that we're not holding up our end of the bargain, it requires addressing it and moving on. I, I, uh-huh. just, I just don't want to waste people's time. You know, let's go home and enjoy our life if we're not, if we're going to waste time, you know, so let's be highly effective. Let's get along while we work. Let's enjoy it. Let's serve our customers because they keep us in business and let's grow the best damn food we can. Mm-hmm. Very simple, you know, and it, it lets us do a lot. So you have this, so that's, in, I, I want to stop right there because you have these principles which guide the business, the very simple principles, but it gives you incredible freedom to make the business and change the business how you want as long as they follow those principles. Pretty much. That's how I yeah. see it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, grow the best food possible. What does that mean? Yeah, to me, that says, I read that, I hear that, and I was like, what's that person actually mean by that? Well, mm-hmm. I like the open-endedness of it. Yeah. Me growing the best food possible means that I can be operating across the street and growing tomatoes in plastic culture, just as I can be growing tomatoes under a tunnel that was intercropped and relay cropped. You know, so like I can I can have all these dynamic principles going on and still believe that I'm growing the best food that I possibly can. There's conditions to why we do anything. And so I believe firmly that I can be pursuing a regenerative agricultural style using plastic just as I can using organic mulches. Mm-hmm. I believe that growing the best food possible means that you know, there's, there's foundations, there's, there's criteria for success. There's levels of it, right? Yeah. But we start with a product that tastes right, that looks right. And then we build on to more uh, higher order requirements. Like, are we seeing more earthworms? Are, you know, I don't measure bricks, but you know, are we doing that? Are we, are we having better, uh, are we managing our irrigation water better? Mm-hmm. Are we, you know, there's various criteria that we can add on as we attempt to grow the best food possible, you know, but grow the best food possible means that there's, that implies that there's conditions involved. And so we have to allow ourselves to be flexible while overall pursuing the end ideal. I guess what I'm trying to say is I adopt, a, uh, my philosophy is one of pragmatism rather than orthodoxy. I have to make money. That's part of growing the best food possible. Mm-hmm. I, in order to make money, I need to feed as many people as I can. 
I can't feed as many people as I possibly can if I'm not growing the best possible food I am. You know, it's a cyclical thing. It's pillars, it's legs of a stool, you know, it's however- And it's a moving goalpost too, because- Yeah, the first year of your farm, you're never gonna grow as good produce as you are after you're five, six years in. I mean, looking at your dialed in production, looking at Ray Tyler's dialed in production and it's going to be light years ahead of what we are in year one in our farm, because we're dealing with, you know, weed seed banks and poor soil and systems and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's where starting simple is critical. That's why we had a lettuce and microgreen farm to start. Mm -hmm. You just have to learn one. And then let that be the metaphor or the, the the whatever that you compare it the rest of your systems to or what your would be systems to. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You need a, you need success. You need small success, and that's so success and risk kind of go hand in hand. I'm not. I don't like big risk. I like little risk, and I like if I can take little risks frequently. That's how we learn and improve. Uh-huh. You ditch the bad stuff. You adopt the good stuff. And then the thing is too, Michael, it's like, how much of this stuff do we try? And we just like, forget, you know, I forgot I had, I used to do it like that or this or that, but you're just working on it, you know, and you, yeah, then you settle, you know, at some point you say, all right, I'm done working today, or that's as good as it's going to be. What's yes. cool about, you know, what's cool about micros, it's not a, I will be honest, and I don't mean to hurt the feelings of my customers if they decide to listen. It's not <laughs> my favorite product. Yeah, but I like it because I seed micros twice a week, which means that I get to have uh, 104 iterations of the same product a year. The learning curve on that is fast. I get to learn and improve rapidly. I'm mm-hmm. looking, you know, just like every week we start transplants, except for maybe the dead of winter. Every week we get to see how lettuce does throughout the season. We might grow 40, 42 crops of lettuce. Mm-hmm. You know, we get to see how it develops. Um, we need, to, so that's, so I'm a little bit scattered here, but my advice to somebody getting started would be, or even somebody with experience who hasn't thought about it like this, pick a crop and watch it, you know? And the crop that you pick, I would suggest it be not the, not just, don't choose the le- don't choose leeks you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or brussels sprouts choose <laughs> fast one so you can actually learn something from it and uh, yeah i was I, not, not yeah i was listening to another one of your podcasts and i don't remember all the details but i think he was a canadian grower they were doing some ferments and stuff but yes they're, mm-hmm. they're, their season's way shorter so his learning curve he was talking about was way longer Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, your location, your region, and stuff like that will really inform how fast you learn. In many cases, too. Not not learn. Your exposure, your exposure to learning opportunities will change. Well, so yes, absolutely. And that episode was Alex. I think Mackie Smith. Um, he's the one that was doing that episode 41. Yeah, that was a fun episode just to listen to the where they're making their money, how they've made ferments work for them. Um, but you're right. I mean, the thing about farming with a lot of these crops like tomatoes is you have one chance a year. So after 12 years, you've grown 12 crops. And you've had 12, to- 12 chances to improve. Uh, with lettuce, literally that's three months. With microgreens, literally that can be two to three weeks if you're doing multiple turns a week. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's why you pick and choose what you do. I mean, you may have, you may perceive a market for heirlooms, right? Yeah. But you're going to learn a lot more from growing a hybrid determinant determinant because I don't grow one crop of tomatoes, Michael. I'm growing like nine crops of tomatoes this year. I, instead of hoping to keep a tomato plant alive, I bet on it dying. So I just replant twice every two weeks, every three weeks for a couple months. Oh, wow. Yep. And then we, we are harvesting tomatoes for a long, long time. Now you're dealing with like the Southern wilts. You're dealing with the mosaic viruses, uh, a late blight, correct? I mean, any, anything's on the table and that's where I'm actually not like the pathogen expert. I, I would like to develop that more in time, but I'm more into like, um, okay. If, if I could have problems, I'm not super interested. In, I'm not super yeah. interested in what the problem is. I just need to make sure I have tomatoes to sell. So yeah. you, you, I think I would recommend people adapt how they deal with problems. I mean, it's good to be a, pa- a, a pathologist, uh, but it's not my top priority. And hopefully nobody hates on me for saying that, but like, I'm interested in preventative maintenance. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in plant nutrition. Um, so you I, never see those diseases. Yeah. I'm just trying not to deal with those or if they're going to, isn't that, so the determinants are great for that because you're going to get a one to three week harvest out of that. And yeah. that's it. So why bother? Um, and that's how I treat the heirlooms as well. I, I worked for a farmer early on. He planted about an acre of, of uh, uh, heirlooms. We got like a three-week pick window out of it before mm. it all went down. Yeah. It seems like a really big waste of time and, and energy. Well, there's no way to scale your marketing typically for a crop like that, unless you have, you know, a massive CSA or something that, you know, you can send them to because marketing that takes a little bit of time to get developed. And so by the time you've gotten it ramped up, you're just ramping back down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and again, customers love tasty, attractive produce they're not aware and will never sympathize with your production issues. It's uh-huh. not their problem. And so as far as like the roadside stand or farmer's market or CSA customer or online sale customer, they just want to know they, they can get these awesome tomatoes every week for the, the whole tomato season. That's what they want. Let's favor their concerns, not ours. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. If there's a magic reset button to like restarting, would you change any major systems or processes? I would consider marketing to my neighborhood sooner. I would, I would have, uh, I thought the only way to make money would be, no, I'm not sure I would, Michael, you know, it just happened the way it was. I think I've made some good choices like investing in, in covered growing was really uh-huh. a good choice. And I encourage others to consider that. Um, making sure your water's right, investigating water up front is critical. Our area does not, we don't have the aquifer system like you do, for instance. Uh. So we, we ha- we're in this Piedmont aquifer. North Carolina has two aquifers. There's the coastal aquifer where there's a lot of water. Um, but it's sandy, sandy bedrock and stuff like that. Um, and then here we have 
I don't know what our bedrock schist and all this and that, but we have a very rocky aquifer and our well pulls about six gallons a minute. Oh gosh. Yeah. So I would have investigated that sooner. Um, so our remedy for irrigation is I, I, we, we got a 10,000 gallon cistern installed. And so we, you know, we, it takes about 24, 30 hours to fill that thing from empty. Mm -hmm. it takes us about three hours to empty it, you know? Yeah. So, so figuring that out early on is critical. You need pressure. You need, you need an agricultural volume of water, even for the small farm you know, to, mm -hmm. be, to be effective. And so, you know, just, just always, investigate the fundamentals and make sure the fundamentals are strong because that really can waste a ton of cash if you figure out that wait a second i actually don't have a viable business because of one or two criteria being absent um in our area uh groundwater ponds is historically what's been used for irrigation because it's what makes sense we have slopes we're in a piedmont we can catch water um and you know, basically we have a lot of, there's ag services around here that have been, that were developed initially for serving tobacco farmers. And so tobacco, while, you know, understandably out of fashion as a crop, um, you know, the crossover to fresh vegetable and market vegetables is pretty linear. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of services for that in our area. And so, on our home farm, we have uh, over 800 foot deep well that only gives us six gallons a minute. Uh, the good news is it's deep and we can pump all day, all night out of it. Mm -hmm. Across the street, we have a three quarters acre pond that we irrigate from. And that's really nice. You know, just having a big body of water is awesome. Yeah. That was us in New York. I mean, we had multiple 800, 900 foot wells that were five gallons a minute. Oh, so Have yeah, into pools or, or what? Well, so that was the home farm. And so we just, everything was on drip on the home farm in the spring and fall, we would have more water. So we would be able to do a little bit of overhead spring and fall, get up the first, you know, that was the first crops, the lettuce and such. And then we switched over to drip for the summer. And then all the greens would go down to our flats. And on the flats, we had um, unlimited water from the river but yeah. it was, so it was river water. So we had to be careful about you know, irrigation with that, not to be too close to harvest time. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, the home farm was, would never have been a viable complete farm by itself. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I don't actually, you know, with the water, the, the well I'm talking about was we, we dug ourselves, but when we got to the farm, initially we were pulling water from the house well that was no longer in service for the house it was just there mm -hmm. so we were using that same same flow rate um but it we used to be a dairy farm not we but yeah. the original farmer was a dairy farm it's like i don't even know how he would have watered his cows reasonably well when they they were lot they would lot up over on our side and then be turned out mm -hmm. across the street and so they'd have access to the pond during the day but I, I don't even know how you would hydrate all those animals at six gallons a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know either. 
because um, we had friends of ours that had a dairy and uh, they had to put in multiple new wells over up when we were up in New York, just because of that very problem. Because again, cows drink a lot of water. Um, you know, thankfully they can do it in smaller quantities than let's say like irrigation. I mean, with the, uh, a vegetable farm, you have to use large amounts of water for overhead. So you're doing a bunch of the time with cows. It's a very even amount a very long time, especially if they're in a barn, if they're outside, it obviously changes drastically because if it's hot out, they need massive amounts. If it's not, it's not as much, but problem is all that milk is water for sure so <laughs> not, not yes coming from their ration i don't think yes yes so let's talk a little bit about um let's wrap this up here because i know we've been going for a while here and again we could probably go three four hours because i mean there's like six other topics we could go into uh, yeah. <laughs> so i mean like we could spend an hour and a half just talking microgreens because i know you have dialed that in so well um what would you say your number one piece of advice would be, you know, like the, if you, if you are new to farmers trying to avoid mistakes and you talked about it a bit earlier is, you know, start with an easy crop, but what other bit of advice would you get to someone who's on their first year? I went the route of working for other people. Oh, first year. Okay. So that, that's not exactly. yeah. going to say get experience first. That's what I did. That made it much easier. Um, even little things you pick up along the way, like where to buy irrigation supplies and stuff like that. Yes. Like those, those little tips and tricks save a lot of BS. Um, mm -hmm. You don't, you don't want to be going to home Depot for your irrigation. No, you want to call John at rainflow and he'll design the system and he'll be right. Yes. So, so first, first year getting started, uh, you know, maybe trust your instinct and try something and, but just have an open mind and be willing to change. And again, take small risks frequently and say, okay, I burnt you. And, and, and also don't get caught up in burning a little cash. You have to be ready to do that. Um, it's part of the fun of it, but it feels really stressful up front. Also, if you're dead set on farming as a career, you've got 30 or 40 years to go, man. And you just have to get over some stuff, be ready to burn a little cash. You need to try ideas and you need to figure out what works. So rather than anything specific, it's more about like mental temperament and, <laughs> and preparing yourself for success. Um, find, you know, find the fundamentals and read them. Uh, Wiswall's book, that's the third or fourth time we brought it up. Um, JM's book, you know, you can't really do without it these days because small scale is a really good way to get practice and learn how to use soil in an organic way. Elliot Coleman's book, you know, how many times have I just referenced that? Um, you know, as, 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 an, as a grower myself, I will flip through that, you know, periodically. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, never sink, can't beat that. All of the new books, there's so many good books out there. It's good to have that. And then just get started, you know, try something. Yeah. Uh, another book that, have you listened or read the Traction book by Gino Wickham? Uh-uh. Yeah, I think anything by him, you're going to really enjoy that because you're at the stage in your farm where you're starting to put people, keep people in the place and run the business um, and starting to a little bit departmentalize it. And uh, he is, that you're going to really enjoy his stuff. I think he's got traction. He's got one more, um, but they're going to really uh, um, make a difference for you. 
Well, that's another thing just worth touching on is like, get over yourself. Other people can do what you do. There's nothing that special. Yeah. About it. Everybody's art. Whatever you think you've done, it's already been done and it's been done over and over again. And it's been done for hundreds of years, if not longer. So just get over yourself. The BCS is not sacred. If I could <laughs> say anything to um, beginning managers, the power is in, the power is not in running a machine. The power is instructing somebody else to run a machine well. Uh-huh. You know, get people as valuable for your business as possible, as fast as possible. There are no limits. If you think you're the only person who can harvest the carrot well, dream on. You just need to show them how to do it and trust them and, and, and appreciate who they are and appreciate yeah. their different perspective. There's no right way to do any of this so long as the customer is satisfied and it comes in under budget. Uh-huh. And marketing is always going to be your number one problem, selling it. At least that's my experience. I mean, some people struggle with the growing, but I think you'd both agree that growing eventually gets easy, but figuring out how to get sell the product is going to be the hard part. Totally. And that, you know, that's where we didn't know it, but that's where our degrees and college training came in, you know, mm-hmm. full force. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it, but um, one design course in college teaches you how to frame a photo for Instagram or okay. studying how to read and write lets you fill out, lets you, helps you get blurbs and verbiage up on your website in a way that's compelling uh-huh. or helps you write a CSA newsletter that actually retains customers and builds your base. You know, those things are critical. Absolutely. All right. Well, Elliot, this has been a very fun podcast and uh, we need to get together and I'd love to get down your way one of these days or get you up here to see what we got going on at some point. Um, But any final thoughts before we head out? Not really. I'd say getting together sounds like fun. Um, If I could touch on that, have, have a little fun, work with others, trust them, and then you might actually get to leave your farm sometime. Just for frame of reference, my wife and I have not had a vacation in seven or eight years. Mm. It just comes with territory. If you're really, really serious about making your business work, but I'm grateful for our crew and I'm grateful to have really good people to work with. And like for the first time in a long time, like we're going to go celebrate a friend's wedding in July, you know, we're going to have a little bit of time to start enjoying what the farm has done for us besides just Mm. a livelihood and food to eat. So um, set goals and, and, and allow yourself to trust others and let go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Elliot, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, I know the audience is going to love this episode. Thank you, Michael. 
Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.